Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Welcome, everyone, and welcome, uh, Alex and Damien. Uh, so today we are speaking with Alex Shahidi and Damien. Is it Besserer? Besserier? Besser- Besserier. Yeah, that's right. Besserier. All right. Yeah, like, um, like Perrier. Got it. Yep. Um, I think as Canadians, we're maybe a little bit better equipped to to, to pronounce those names, the French-derived uh, names. But um, so yeah, the progenitors of the RPAR ETF, of course, that's not the entire story and we want to get a much more comprehensive view of, of uh, both of your stories today. Um, I guess before we get going, maybe our uh, chief comedian and compliance officer uh, can say a few words about what everyone should expect from this episode. Can I just have a sip of my alcohol? Well, before yeah, I do can- that again? I'm yeah. drinking my red. Today. Did you guys, uh, did you guys get the memo that it, this was a drinking interview? Maybe not. Uh, at the very at the very last minute, so I, I don't actually have anything besides my coffee, which is not as exciting. You know, you could have just lied and said there's whatever rum or whiskey. <laughs> <in your coffee. laughs> I guess I could have said well, that. You're yeah. from the West Coast. I guess there might be other things available, other party <laughs> favors that you can't talk about. Um, so, all right, uh, Mike, take it away. Well, just uh, just a warning for everybody that we are going to discuss lots of topics. They're very wide ranging. Uh, some of them may include investing topics and that you should take any advice that you receive from this particular uh, venue and not use it in any way, shape or form. There is no advice, as it were, <laughs> and uh, that you should consult a professional in executing anything that you might find interesting from this conversation. And uh, with that, let's roll. Well said. So, I mean, obviously, uh, Alex, Damien, uh, we have a shared interest in asset allocation, in particular risk parity. So we're going to certainly talk about your new ETF, RPAR. But I think we'd all like to know a little bit more about your respective careers and how they culminated in a partnership on this project. Uh, sure. Damien, you want to kick it off? Yours is a lot more interesting than mine. Um, so I grew up in, in LA and uh, then moved back East uh, to go to college and worked in financial services, spent most of my career actually at Bridgewater, which is a large hedge fund in Connecticut. And uh, when I was at Bridgewater, I, I met Alex. He was actually one of our uh, largest clients and, and uh, he was uh, overseeing an institutional consulting practice at Merrill Lynch, uh, probably the largest uh, at the firm. And so he had some multi-billion dollar clients, pension plans, uh, that were investors with Bridgewater. So um, actually a funny story. He uh, he was in the office uh, meeting with my boss, Ray Dalio, back in, I think it was maybe 2009. And uh, they had a good conversation. And afterwards, Ray grabbed me in the hallway and he said, that guy I was talking to, he's got good common sense. We should hire him, which is not, you know, it's, it's a little atypical after meeting someone for the first time for Ray. I mean, it was a pretty high compliment. And so I called up Alex and I basically offered him the opportunity to move cross country because he was in Los Angeles. No and, uh, and so he basically said, I, you know, can I move my, you know, can I, can I do this from Los Angeles? I was like, I've been trying to convince Ray of that for years. It's not happening. And, uh, and so he said, well, while we're on the topic, would you ever consider working with me? 
So that was when we, <laughs> when, when we, when we well, first started talking about it. You do have some common sense. That's some <laughs> yeah. common sense right yeah. there. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, we talked about it for a number of years and then uh, my wife and I decided to move back to uh, LA to start a family. And that was back in 2014. So I left Bridgewater and, and Alex and I started the business. And what were you focused on in, in Bridgewater? I mean, there's many roles that one takes there. Uh, was it the risk parity side for you? Um, well, so, um, at Bridgewater, it's a lot of generalists. So, I mean, there's obviously different departments. So I started in research. Um, I was in their investment associates program. And then, um, you have the opportunity to choose different paths. And I, and I really enjoyed working with clients. So one of the unique aspects of Bridgewater is that they put investment professionals in the seats of client relationship managers. And the goal was to deepen the relationship beyond, just uh, the return stream. We wanted to be a partner to our clients to help them think through their their strategic challenges like asset allocation. And so all weather was kind of core or risk parity was kind of core to how we approach the a whole range of strategic issues related to asset allocation. That was our philosophy around how you, sh- you should allocate assets. And so I was in that role of uh, basically providing that advice and that um, that strategic help to, to a you know, endowment CIOs and pension plan CIOs and those types of investors. And Alex was one of those. So actually, um, he'll, he'll talk about his background, but one of the first things that he did um, after we introduced that philosophy to him was, and this is an indication of the kind of person that Alex is, he, his response was, oh, that's interesting. Let me, let me do my own work on that. And so he went back and did a bunch of research on the topic. He ended up writing a book that was published by Wiley. The first book that I know of that really elaborates on that philosophy in any detail because he thought this was such a, a wonderful thing that every investor should have access to that knowledge base and you know and, and actually it was only available to a few institutional investors who would embrace the concept so um that's the yeah background. i remember reviewing it before it came out it was uh, read it a couple times just to round things off I mean, we'd written a book that touched it, but nothing as detailed as uh, balanced risk. Is that what it's called? Balanced asset uh, allocation. Balanced asset allocation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how many electrodes did the average employee get hooked up to in Bridgewater <laughs> on a daily basis? Like, what was the, what was the routine there? How many yeah. buttons it, were you pressing and the, telling the, you? The, well, the, button, the buttons and the electrodes increased over time. So when I joined, it was 200 people. Ray hired me. Oh, so wow. there were no, there were no electrodes. There was just, there was just Ray and his watchtower, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and then over time, you know, that you can't scale Ray. And so he, he decided that, you know, the same way that he approached investing, which was to systemize his investment thinking, he wanted to systemize his management process. And so that he could essentially build a management infrastructure that implemented the same type of management style that he was implementing on his own. And so then, then the electrodes came and all the other things came along with that. Interesting. All right. So, Alex, why don't you give us your background? Uh, sure. I, you know, I grew up in California, up and down the coast. Uh, went to college in Santa Barbara, uh, and then went. I went to law school in San Francisco. And uh, while I was at law school, the first thing I realized is I didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, and and so I I still went through. I finished. Um, uh, yeah, finished. I, I graduated. Took the bar exam, and a week later, I started at Merrill Lynch as a financial advisor. And, and what's fun about that experience is you arrive and they say, welcome, here's a computer and here's a phone, go get clients. And uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting to do that when you're at the top of the market, which was in the late 90s. So my first three years in the business, the market fell 
Um, so it's not it's not the you know it's not the headwind you're hoping for when you're <laughs> launching your career. But what it what it taught me is the value of protecting uh, principle and and trying to achieve a steady return. And so all those uh, that that was kind of instilled in me early in my career. Um, you know, obviously I wasn't managing very much, but it gives you the it, you realize how important it is to protect, and then also the behavioral biases of people and you know, this whole, you know, selling low and buying high. And, and so all of that was instilled early in my life and uh, in my career. So, so I was in Merrill Lynch for 15 years. Um, in 2014, I felt it was time to move to the next chapter. Uh, Damien and I had been talking for, felt like almost 10 years. You know, we, we moved slow in, in our business and, uh, and, you know, all the stars aligned and it was time to leave and, uh, you know, launch our own firm, which we did in 2014. And uh, the, I think within a month is when the book got published. So I was working on that at the same time. And since then, we've been embracing this risk parity concept, uh, implementing it in client portfolios, and always looking for ways to uh, incrementally make improvements. And the launch of the ETF is kind of a continuation of that process. Um, and, and I think we'll probably talk about that. But it, it, you know, our, our mission is is keep improving the investment process. And so all the resources that we that we bring in all the people we talk to. Uh, we're always looking for the you know people who are smarter than us. That's why uh, I thought it was good for Damien to join me. He's you know he doubles our IQ average, and and so so if you keep doing that and you look forward ten to twenty years, your portfolios will be better than they are today. So that's that you know that's the lifelong uh, objective that we'll never get to uh, you know the ultimate, but we're always going to get better. That's the, that's you know that's who I am. So you, currently today, you manage um, a private practice. It's mostly high net worth. Is it also institutional? Is it a combination? What does the practice look it's like? A, it's a combination. Uh, so mm-hmm. we advise uh, about $18 billion in assets. Um, and uh, it's for institutions and high net worth. It's like 50-50 in terms of assets. Um, and, uh, you know, the portfolios are, you know, our goal is slow and steady wins the race. And, and. You know, that's that's the way we, we manage it. So we've been talking for for several years, um, mostly, I think, on the topic of risk parity. So my understanding is that you have been employing a risk parity concept, whether it was an allocation to all weather or your own internal risk parity formulation for a while. How do you articulate it? I mean, are, are the people that listen to this to this podcast and and all of our other content, I think, are sick of hearing how we articulate it. So I'm always curious to hear how other people think about it and, and describe it and make it understandable and approachable. Sure, Damien, do you want to you want to start? Sure. Um, so I, I'm going to take it a, a step back, actually, and talk about, in our view, how to build a great portfolio, which I think is. Um, you know, th- this is very much an, an implementation of, of how to do that. Um, it, but it's, it's a limited implementation in the sense that it's just focused on things that are easily accessible. So public markets. And so, so our view on a great portfolio is lots of individually attractive return streams. Let's say return streams that offer you equity like or better returns, but that are reliably different from one another. And that second part is the part that is probably the most underappreciated aspect of investment management. The vast majority of portfolios are full of lots of line items that are very closely related to one another. They're equity-oriented line items. And so they tend to go up and down together. There isn't a lot of 
diversification, reliable diversification in most client portfolios or most investor portfolios generally. And so risk parity is our our attempt to look at what's available in the public markets and try to build something that is as consistent as possible by taking advantage of, of, of those diversification benefits. So that, that's how I'd say, and then we can get into the mechanics of risk parity, but I, I think it's important to start there because it's just not how people think about investing when it actually, in our view, is very common sense. So what, what are the fundamental assumptions for that inform a risk parity portfolio that are different from how many investors think about forming portfolios? Yeah, I mean, the, I, and, and a lot of this sounds uh, intuitive, but the way most people invest is they look for things that they think are going to go up over time. And they look for things that they think are attractive returns, and they just allocate to those. And then if, if those things are too risky, then they'll own bonds or other things to control the risk. And, and so when you, when you approach it from that framework, you basically end up with a portfolio that has a lot of stocks and maybe high yield bonds or corporate bonds, um, because the, the assumption is the expected return of those is higher than it is for you know, bond, you know, higher quality bonds. And so if you're a longer term investor, if you're more comfortable taking risk, you should own more of those things. And, and if you're less comfortable or have other, other concerns or needs, you, you own less and you scale up and down based on your risk profile. So that's the way, you know, that's the way return based, return expectations based. Yeah, asset yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. That's, that's a simple way to say it. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay. So, so that's the way most people think the, the challenge though, is that, is that if you follow that path, you could end up with a portfolio that is not very balanced and, and balanced to us means, means something that is not highly dependent on any single uh, economic environment. Um, so, so portfolio that is equity centric or credit centric will do well when the economy is doing well and it'll do poorly when the economy is doing poorly. Um, and it also is not the a great inflation hedge. So like in the 1970s, it, it would have done really poorly. And, and the, what's really interesting is because most portfolios are positioned that way, when bad times come and you lose money, you look around and, and everybody you know has lost money too. So it feels like that's the way it is. And, and we're all in this together. We're down together. Everybody just hold on. It's going to come back. So that's the, that's the philosophy. But there is a better way. And, and, it's, and it's reliably better over the long run. And, and so, but you have, to, you have to dismiss the traditional way of thinking, the conventional wisdom. Um, so, so the way we think about it, which is, which is, I think, a different approach, is, is rooted in what Damon described, which is look for return streams that are attractive, that are different from one another, as opposed to uh, what you just said, which is focusing on just the returns. And, and what is really surprising is you can take these traditionally lower risk asset classes and you can scale them up to give you comparable return and risk. So, so I'll give you a couple of data points, which I think might surprise a lot of people. Uh, so if you look at the last 50 years, uh, global stocks have earned 8 to 9% a year for 50 years. Long-term treasuries, you know, the, the thing that nobody likes today, has had about the same return for the last 50 years. And, and, and you think about uh, philosophically and conceptually, how can that be? How can a government-guaranteed security have the same return as stocks, which are really risky? And it's because you're basically, you can extend the duration and you can increase the risk. So, so stocks are, have a higher return because the risk is higher and bonds have a lower return because the risk is lower, but you can, you can equalize them. Um, and you can do the same thing with things like gold or inflation linked bonds or commodities. 
And, and if you, if your menu of choices isn't just, you know, high risk stocks and low risk bonds, if your menu is, is a bunch of things that have similar returns and risk, then your framework for building a portfolio is a lot more advanced. And you can end up with a portfolio of asset classes that go up and down in different environments fairly reliably that have all have high expected returns and you end up with a lot less risk. So that's, that's the, the way I think about it and, and the framework that, that I hope makes sense. The interesting thing about this conversation is that Rodrigo and I get to play a role on the, on the other side, um, asking I got questions. 50 that, questions. Yeah, that's right. That, that we hear all the time as challenges. One of them, of course, a timely challenge is the fact that government bond rates are a fraction of what they were 30 or 40 years ago. And so why should investors think that the next, that the returns to bonds or the risk adjusted returns to bonds rather over the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years are likely to be similar to the risk adjusted returns on stocks? How do you respond yeah. to that? So, so th that's a question I've been getting for about 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay. so rates have been low for, I mean, rates have been falling for 40 years, right? You go to the early eighties. And, and, you know, 10 years ago, they were too low. They can't possibly go any lower. Nine months ago, they were too low. There's no way they can go any lower. And look at where we are now, right? So, so if you just look at U.S. rates relative to the rest of the developed world, they're actually high, right? So, so they can certainly go lower. Uh, so, so, so that's point number one. Number two is rates falling. Has, it has benefited bonds. It's also benefited stocks. It's benefited all asset classes. And looking forward... The expected return of all of them is lower, right? Because when cash is, you know, I remember when I started in the late '90s, cash was yielding six percent, right? So you could have you could have just bought cash and earned six percent, and and you know, and stocks you would expect a much higher return than that. Otherwise, who would take the risk of stocks to to get something less? But today, cash is zero, right? And and over you know, last hundred years, stocks have outperformed cash by four or five percent a year. That's where you get those, you know, nine to ten percent returns. When cash is zero, the expected return of stocks is low. So, so um, you know, the, it's it's a challenging environment because cash is at such a low rate, right? So, so then, you know, so the, the third point, and I'll let Damon jump in, is that the real question you have to ask isn't whether rates are going to go up or down. You have to ask what would cause that to happen, right? So, so let's say you know we're looking at the next we're looking in the next twelve months. If I told you that the economy was going to suffer a, you know, a devastating hit, more so than what's already, uh, it's already happened, there's a good chance rates are going to fall further. And if you don't own that bond, right, you're gonna, you, don't have the, you don't have the balance in your portfolio. And likewise, if the economy does really well, rates will probably rise and that bond will get hurt, but your other assets will do well. And, and so, you, so rather than trying to guess, because it's really hard to do that, I think 2020 is a perfect example of the difficulty in predicting you know, the markets and, and even the economy, um, it's, in our view, it's better to be balanced and especially, you know, in today's environment. Yeah. I think I, I use the example of what did German advisors say to their clients in 2015 when yields were 0.75 in right. the German bund? Right. Why, what's the point of owning these? They're only right. yielding 75 basis points. Who would own these? Who would own such things? Fast forward three years. And if you held a portfolio of German bunds, a 10 year, you yeah. would have annualized at just under 6%, right? Yeah. So these are, this is the challenge is everybody, I remember 09, there's nowhere else to go but up in terms of yields. 
and uh, here we are today. So right. certainly, I, I, it, though, it's easier to. I do, I do think. Yeah, I do think you need to you need to make some adjustments though, because if you know if you're holding just very short term bonds, there isn't much more room to fall. And so one thing that we're conscious of is we want to make sure that in a downside growth scenario, you're actually getting meaningful diversification from the bond portfolio. That's the role of the of the treasury exposure is to provide a hedge to that downside growth scenario when equities are likely struggling. And so one thing we have done is we've moved further out on the curve where there's a lot more room to fall. So 30-year bonds in the US are 1.4%, which doesn't sound like a whole lot. But if we go the way of Japan and, and Europe, which you know is a not an unreasonable assumption, those rates could be much closer to zero. And so that type of a rally with long duration bonds would have a meaningful uh, return impact on the portfolio. And so that's one thing we've done is we move further out on the curve. Um, and then the other thing that I think is relevant in this environment is we've also increased our exposure to gold. Right. And so if you think about monetary policy, traditionally, it was to lower interest rates to stimulate the economy. That is a tool that has minimal, um, maybe no effectiveness at this point. <clears throat> and so now the way that central banks manage their economies, the way they stimulate is to print money. And initially it was to print money and buy assets. And now it's to print money. And and uh, and then turn around and have the government uh, fiscally stimulate. So it's a print and spend policy. Um, and so that environment, I think gold in many ways has become a barometer for stimulus that's likely to come in a weaker growth environment. And I think it, it can function in that way as as a, as a complement to the Treasury exposure where you don't have any sort of upside cap on how high gold can go. Um, and, and in this environment, I think. It's hard to envision a scenario over the next decade or two where you don't get a lot more printing from global central banks. Can I just go back to your first point on going up the um, the maturity? So in your implementation of risk parity, in lieu of levering up the bond portfolio, you're going up the maturity curve. So you're not you're not choosing to lever up the the short term cash rate. Yeah. Um, is is there an advantage? What is, what is the advantage or disadvantage of, of uh, choosing to go up the maturity curve versus levering? Is there, have you guys put any thought into that? We have. Um, I mean, if you look historically, the uh, shorter term bonds have a higher sharp ratio than the long term bonds. So, so I guess on, if you were to look at that narrowly and you say that the future is going to be like the past, you'd say, I'd rather lever up the shorter term bonds. The challenge is, of course, that shorter-term bonds are offering you virtually no yield, and um, and I think there are also challenges with managing a higher degree of leverage in the strategy, which you know also in a forty-act context that that also gets challenging. So um, so I think um, as I think about the future, because we're trying to manage this portfolio for the environment that we're in today. Um, uh, again, we come back to this notion of why are the bonds in the portfolio? They're they're in the portfolio obviously to deliver a return but also to provide outperformance in certain environments that are challenging for equities and namely a downside growth scenario. And so in our view, that 30-year bond offers you much more potential return because there's just physically, you know, for the same amount of duration at the 30-year point versus the 10-year or the five-year point, there's just so much more room for that rate to fall. Um, that it's, you know, it, it's possible that, you know, you get better returns on a prospective basis from those bonds than you do from the shorter duration bonds. 
which you know may not be but able you get to more you feel like you get more convexity from the 30 year than you would from yeah. the uh levering up the short end that's right okay so it, it almost becomes because that's another thing that i wanted to ask you guys about is the um the idea of risk parities that you have balance across these different regimes, right? High growth, low growth, low inflation, yep. high inflation. And yet empirically, we see that when there is a big uh, growth shock, risk parity doesn't do so well. So um, it, one of the ways that you guys are looking into reducing that is by looking at high convexity options on that bond side. And, and I guess increase the gold side as well. That would, that would definitely. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the question you really have to ask is, if you get a downside growth surprise, what's probably going to do well? And that's the question you should always be asking. So, so let's say hypothetically the ten-year treasury is at zero, um, and you ask that question: What's going to do well when when you know the economy experiences a downturn? The ten-year is probably not going to move very much because it's near, it maybe goes negative, but it has limited room. The thirty-year has a lot more room. And then you also, you know, in an environment where the Fed can't lower rates anymore, maybe they go negative, but they're near the near the bottom, they're probably going to print money. And that's good for gold. So so those are the I think if you ask yourself those questions without having to guess what's going to happen, you know, it, it's it's like an if then type of you know, series of questions of downside growth, upside growth, downside inflation, upside inflation, what's probably going to do well. Uh, and you just own those assets and you risk balance them. That's how you get you know, a solid portfolio. Can I push back just on that point? Yeah. I want to, I want to, I haven't thought it through really. Um, is you said something that there isn't a lot of room with the forward guidance from the fed, you know, really make taking that zero bound out of the equation and allowing things to go negative. Can we truly say that there is less room? Um, is it more of a politically it's untenable and therefore there's less room or is this a kind of a mathematical reality of some sort? Well, I mean, there's less room than it was 15 years ago, right? Or 10 years ago, or even one year ago. So, so yes, you can go negative, but there's limits. As you, to, you know, at, at some point when you're, when you're too negative, people will just hold the cash, right? Then they're, they're, it's, it, you just run out of room, literally. Um, and you're seeing some limits, you know, globally. Uh, I think, I think the, the lowest negative I've seen was negative 70 bips or 75 bips. Um, so there is some lower bound. We don't know exactly where it is. You know, maybe it's zero, maybe it's slightly. Right now they're telling you we're never going to go zero, but that may change in a crisis. Right. So, yeah. um, um, so I think, but, but you are, you're getting there. Uh, we don't know exactly where the line is, but we know we're a lot closer to it than we've ever been. Got it. So one thing that I've always struggled a question i've always struggled to answer which comes up a lot especially in conversations with institutions so i'm actually really curious how you approach this problem but it's the, the question of capital market expectations for a risk parity portfolio um because it, it seems to me the intuition around the efficiency of the portfolio is relatively tight you're making very few assumptions yeah, uh, mm -hmm. got a general efficiency or equilibrium model um, to form the portfolio. But then, how do you approach the question of how much return you should expect to get per unit of risk? Right? What is the slope of the capital market line after you form this portfolio? Damien, you want to take that one? Sure. Um, so uh, it's interesting. So you can go asset class by asset class. So um, 
you know, with, with regards to the, the treasuries and the tips, um, you know, there's, there's both the yield, but there's also rolling down the curve, which is a, which is an aspect of investing in bonds that people don't appreciate. Um, but, but you actually do get a, an increase in valuation, which is a portion of your return as rates come down, as you essentially roll down the curve. Um, and that's so even, that's even with negative real yields, that's right. That's right. So, so, you know, you could have you know, or negative nominal yields in the, in, yeah. you know, in, in, in Europe, you know, you can get, you can still get positive returns. Like if you, you know, so, so anyway, so that's a, that's a little bit of a distinction. And actually the way we allocate to treasuries here is we, we use futures. And so futures actually, they're not the total return of bonds. They're actually just the excess return of bonds. So it really is just a function of how bonds do relative to cash. Um, you know, and that, that ultimately determines your, your return pr profile there. Um, and so, so, so that's how I think about the bonds. So we, we think you can get close to equity like returns. If you're holding them longer duration, you use some leverage, meaning it may not be literally levered. So in the tips context, we just hold more than we do in commodities and, uh, and equities. Um, and then the way we solve for that on the commodity side is that commodity futures, I think there's an argument there around what is the return of commodity futures? Is there an excess return or risk premium? And so we actually approach that differently. We actually hold commodity producer equities where we're much more convicted in the risk premium. You know, historically, there's been a very persistent risk premium. In fact, commodity equities over the last 50 years have outperformed traditional, you know, broadly diversified equities. And so, um, so that's, that's how we're generating a lot of the return there, reliable return, equity-like return on the, on the commodity side. And the gold, you can argue, you know, there's probably not a risk premium there, but it's interesting. If you look at the 50-year return of gold, it's actually almost spot on the 50-year return of equities. So that's maybe a, an indication of how, you know, um, you know, what, what it's like to have a fiat currency regime, because <laughs> it's basically since the end of, of the, of Bretton Woods and, and, and when we came off the gold standard. But I, I think you can certainly imagine a scenario over the next 10 or 20 years where gold has a similarly attractive return profile because central banks are just printing and printing and printing. So, so we don't necessarily think there's a risk premium there, but we do think there's a, um, an attractive return profile just by virtue of the supply of fiat currency increasing that could be quite competitive with equities. Um, yeah. And so when you, when you get down to it, we still think you're getting similar return contributions from the different components. And then there's another piece here, which I think is really underappreciated, which is the rebalancing benefit. So when you have a portfolio of low correlation line items and you're constantly buying the thing that underperformed and selling the thing that outperformed, so you're, you're, you're buying low and selling high, and you do that over and over again, the average return of the portfolio is actually higher than the average of the underlying components on a standalone basis. And in a portfolio like this, we've looked at this over long timeframes, it's about 1% of incremental return you get at the portfolio level relative to the average of the underlying returns. And that's how, like, how that's really, you guys rebalancing in this uh, in your implementation quarterly quarterly. And then this is, then this, this gets to another really interesting feature of ETFs, which is that you can do the rebalancing in ETF without triggering any tax consequences. And so, so it's really powerful from a portfolio management perspective, because, you know, I can tell you as a financial advisor, we run into this all the time that you want to rebalance, but you don't because things are appreciated and clients don't want a tax bill. Mm -hmm. And so inevitably well, that, that and people have a hard time selling high and buying low. It's just that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause you're telling them to buy the thing that just <clears throat> did terribly. So, yeah. and so, so in the context of ETF, we can do that programmatically, but then importantly, we can do that in a tax efficient way. And so it's, it adds incremental return to the portfolio. And so that's why, you know, we think we have a good shot at being competitive with equities.
Right. So on, think, sorry, go ahead, Mike. Good. I was just going to ask on that note. So you've got sort of precious metals, energy, and non-energy commodities. So you've you've decided that commodity exposure through the through the the um, sort of equity assets. Um, but as you say, you don't necessarily have to anticipate a positive risk premia to benefit from an enhancement in the geometric mean of the portfolio if um, there's a rebalancing opportunity. So did you ever think of, was the limitation for commodities other than gold, um, those that you are doing through the equity uh, piece, was, was that ever a consideration? Was it a structural limitation of the ETF that um, sort of steered you away from the the, the sort of non- the direct uh, gold, yeah, the direct commodity exposure rather than the equity-based equity exposure. Um, so the, the equities have a couple of attractive features. So I talked about one, which is a higher expected return. Mm-hmm. But obviously there's a negative that comes with that too, which is that it's more equity-like. Yep. Um, and so the way that we solve for that, uh, it, it, well, actually, I, I would say the other big positive that you have to factor in is there's a tax advantage to it. So if you're going to hold commodity futures, you would have to do that in a way that utilizes derivatives you know, most likely you'd have to hold that through a Cayman subsidiary. Right. You got a blocker. Gonna, so there's, and that's going to generate income. That's going to generate income. And there's nothing you can do to shield that income. It's going to, so if it goes up, it's going to generate income for your portfolio. And so that's, that's far inferior to managing it in the context that I just described, which is to yep. basically defer all your capital gains. So that, so that was a big piece of it as well. Um, and then what we did was on the, on the, commodity side to solve for the negative that I mentioned, which is that it's more related to the equity markets, is we created our own basket, which was as close to the underlying commodity price as we could get. So so we redefined the commodity universe to just identify companies that were pulling it out of the ground, essentially. So we don't include refiners or even like steel makers, because that is that is more, you're taking iron ore as an input. Um, and so in the mining and energy space, it's very directly um, related to those pulling it out of the ground. And then agriculture is a trickier one because there's not as direct of a link. So we we chose companies that were, you know, a, a logically connected to the price of of crops. And so, you know, it would be, you know, fertilizer companies or um or uh or deer, you know, machinery, agricultural machinery companies. And but that's a smaller allocation than the other two. Um, and then we did include things like clean energy and water as well. And clean energy, I imagine, might grow as a as a as a piece of this as fossil fuels become less um, utilized. Um, but that's how we that's how we did it. Right. So, the, so the, like securities rather than than energy sector ETFs and and the correct. Like. Yeah, we 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 actually created our own index, um, which also has a cost advantage. So if we're using an ETF, we have to pay another layer of fees. We hold it in the fund just on a direct basis. Uh, it's less expensive. And that's why when you look at the holdings, you might be confused. You're like, why do they hold a bunch of resource stocks and then a bunch of ETFs? It's because for broad market exposure, the Vanguard ETFs are very efficient and low cost. But for tailored exposure, it made more sense for us to build it ourselves. Right. And so the basis risk that you experience Go ahead. through the basis risk you experience through the through the proxy of the equity uh, is overwhelmed by the fact you get these tax advantages um, and all of these other sort of structural advantages in the ETFs that that flow back to the investors, which is a very thoughtful construction. Um, well, there, actually, there, there's 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 two more things actually. So yeah. one is you can you can basically dissect a commodity equity into equity and commodities exposure. Right. So so you can bake that into how you build your equity allocation, so you don't get over allocated there. So that's one component. It's it, it just just think of it as two. And yeah. actually, it's there's some leverage there too. So that's efficient. 
Yeah. Um, so, so it's not like uh, a commodity equity exposure is 50-50 stocks and commodities. It's more like 60-60 or 70-70. Um, and so you can bank that into how you build a portfolio. And then the other piece is that we have a larger allocation to gold than, you know, than, um, than is probably typical in a lot of these risk parity strategies. And part of it is related to gold helps hedge some of that equity risk that's embedded in the commodity producer equities. It really does. That That's actually, a, I think, an a, maybe an unknown point that the the correspondence with gold and inflation is not as uh, the correlation rather is not as great as the correlation between gold returns and volatility, which seems to be a nice offset in that in that sense. So now, do you do um, so? Do you do the gold exposure via stocks, or is that via both, or the commodity? How, how do you only, you may have covered the, that only the commodity? Yeah, so only we, the commodity we, for gold. We, we just so. hold uh, we we hold one of the grantor trusts. Uh, ETFs that give you exposure to the physical bullion. Okay. Yeah. The, the other thing about gold is that is that you know we're always looking backwards and seeing what worked in the past and trying to formulate a portfolio looking forward. But gold has a very interesting place today. When you you know we have we've never had interest rates this low in the U.S. and and we haven't had monetary policy like we have today, where you've got a you know you had a trillion dollar deficit before COVID. And now you've got a multi-trillion dollar deficit after and, you know, with promises to keep it going as long as possible. And so as part, you know, part of the idea is balance and you have to, you, you can't just look at the past. You have to consider that we're in very unique times and gold is one of those assets that, you know, it's been around thousands of years, right? It's a storehold of wealth. And ultimately you're trying to achieve a, a return for clients that protects them in a terrible environment and gives them some upside. And gold could participate in both of those. And you've seen that this year, right? It was up, you know, in the beginning when the market collapsed and it's up, you know, 20 plus percent year to date. Um, so so that part of this is forward thinking as well. I think, Adam, you, you want to say something? No, I mean, I just wanted to, I, I know for sure that a good, a good friend of, of ours, uh, Dave Cantor, I wonder if he's listening, is going to want me to press the point on how how you come up with capital market expectations, and I know you started going down that path, but I'd love to be able to close that loop because. All right. So so critical. so okay. So <laughs> so what we do is we assume a similar sharp ratio across assets. So um, we actually don't believe in CapM. CapM doesn't actually reflect reality in any shape or form. So in, so as a great example, inflation index bonds have a negative beta to the stock market, but they do not have a negative excess return. And so CAPM depends on all of these assumptions that just don't hold in practice. They, it, it assumes that every uh, investor has the same objective function. It assumes everyone can leverage. Um, you know, you have, it's, just, it's just not reality. And so, so this is, I think, the, the reason why risk parity works is that people don't price for diversification benefits. So theoretically, a cap M, the reason why the market portfolio is the efficient portfolio to hold in theory is that assets that offer you diversification benefits should have their price bid up to the point where they don't have any excess return or negative excess return. But that's not the reality. You know, bonds have outperformed stocks over the last 30 years. You know, so it doesn't. So in, in, the, in practice, what we find is that assets actually give you a much more similar return relative to risk. Um, uh, and, and then would be implied by cap M. And so maybe it's not perfect, you know, and, and nobody knows what it's actually going to be, but in, in empirically, that's, what's been the case is that they all give you an excess return above cash. And so we go into this assuming 
that um, we can get similar returns relative to risk for each asset class. Understanding that maybe in practice on a prospective basis, bonds don't do quite as well. That's okay because they have really powerful diversification properties. And we're also picking up some return in the rebalancing. Um, and you know, maybe gold, you know, you don't have a same argument for a risk premium, but I think there are other logical arguments there for why there should be a positive expected return. And that definitely doesn't fit Cap M, right? Um, and so so that's that's how I'd answer that question directly. It's so, funny because they oh, go ahead. As I look at as I look across the different asset classes, I mean, I, in an effort to answer this recently, I mean, one thing that we can calculate with a fairly high degree of certainty is the expected sharp ratio on bonds because you've got a generally, you've got a decent estimate of the roll yield. You know the starting yield. You know that there are really good simple formulas for forecasting expected bond returns over a horizon equal to twice the duration of the bond for a continuous contract. Um, so you sort of start there for a 30-year bond. Maybe you're looking at, you know, let's say the bond has a 15% fall. Its expected return is 1.5%. Sorry, yeah, about 1.5% a year. So you're looking at a sharp ratio of about 0.1, maybe less than that, on because if you, you want to sort of um, build in excess returns. So if you've yeah, got a- I mean, it's, it's probably a little higher than that. Like if you look at investing in long-term bonds in Japan over the time, like if you just look at, if you just started buying long-term bonds in Japan after they fell below 2%, it was literally the best sharp ratio on the planet of any asset, you know, because it's a steep curve that was controlled by the central bank. And you just roll down the curve every year and volatility actually was ne- nowhere near what you're describing because they're intervening in their markets. And so, so that's the challenge of trying to to, to use some sort of precision with this assessment, we don't really know. I think there's a, you can make an argument that it's a terrible investment. A lot of people say like, this is the worst investment on the planet, but then you have to think about, okay, in what scenarios are they, are they thinking about? And how would the other assets in the portfolio do in those scenarios? And ultimately we're trying to construct something that's like a finely tuned engine, right? Where there are components that would do well in any scenario you can envision. And, um, and, and treasuries like them or not, is one of the, you know, it has a very specific role. And I don't think that, you know, even with low rates, that role changes meaningfully. I do, I do give, I, I would give on the point that I do think the expected return, the sharp ratio is certainly lower than what we've experienced, you know, because you just don't have that tailwind of falling rates, but it doesn't mean it's not attractive. Um, and, and if you're in this sort of con- you know, deflationary type of environment that we're in today, you know, it could still be a great performing asset class. We don't know. Keep in mind, we're, uh, we I agree with you. I think the, we are big believers in the risk parity portfolio. It's just yeah. I, getting a lot of the pushback we get is how do you, what are the expected returns on this portfolio, right? So if we're expecting all of the <clears throat> the same uh, diversification adjusted sharp ratio, right, in the portfolio, then you know if, if we know what that sharp ratio is, then we've got the slope of that line and we can tell them we can give some sort of forecast about the expected return that they can get per unit of volatility. So it's just what the slope of that line is at the moment, I think is pertinent to institutions. I mean, it's, it's funny because we talk to institutions and large investors and we talk to the principals at, at AQR, for example, we understand that, uh, you know, this is a core, their, their risk parity strategy is a core holding for many of the principals, but it's very difficult to sell outside the firm. Institutions don't generally buy into it. Yeah. Um, major challenges is it's really hard to come up with capital market expectations. And if you do come up with capital market expectations that are fundamentally aligned with the principles of the strategy, 
then you end up having fairly low expectations at this time, right? So I just think it's it's, it's a very well, you, in, I, in, I do I agree I agree on the bond part. You you probably have lower expectations than you did historically, but you do have the same problem on the equity part. I mean, equities are Amen. historically high valuations, Amen. and so it's it's not like it's in isolation. <laughs> that the expensive problem exists. It's, it exists everywhere in every public market asset and, and, by, and every private market asset too, right? That's, that's the thing that's very difficult to get across or any investor, right? Is that you're coming in with this, as you said, fine-tuned machine that is trying, what we say here is that it, it, this is about preparation and it's not about prediction, right? And every, everybody else in our industry is designed to think about prediction before preparation. And that's a big problem, especially in a period like right now where you said, look, you got expensive bonds, you got expensive equities, and you know, there's no point in investing in something that's going to consistently invest in those two things in equal risk. Like, why on earth would I do that? What if it goes to shit? Well, it didn't. It hasn't. And it's <laughs> out so far. But yeah. let's, let's put, put that, push that aside. Why, when is a period where both bonds and equities go down together? It's a period of rising or, or unexpected inflationary shocks, right? When was the last time we saw that in the 70s? Well, what happened to that gold component in the 70s or that commodity component, that tips component that had existed? Well, it turns out that the returns for that asset class were way outside of expectations, you know, huge right tail event that tended to offset the losses of the other two so that your expected sharp ratio is within normal expectations of a well-fine-tuned machine like Risperity. So there is that the hope here, or if, if we think about this problem appropriately, is that one of the components, one or two of the components, is going to have ridiculous positive returns when the other ones suffer. But the problem that we all fall into is every time we think we know what the returns are going to be and what our worries are going to be next year, we're always wrong, right? Yeah, well, that, so that's this, the whole point. Yeah. But it's tough yeah. to get that across. So I say, listen, you got to be okay with, with losing money in two components and sticking to it because we have this other thing and not then have your committee say, well, why don't we just own a bunch of gold right now? Because maybe tomorrow it goes to shit. Yeah. Like it's just, it's a well, difficult conversation. Just go back. Let's just rewind 12 months. So if we were sitting here 12 months ago, one, we wouldn't be on, on, on video, right? We'd be in person, exactly. but, but, but two, who would have predicted where we are just 12 months later? Not yeah. a single person on earth. Right. That, you know, unemployment rate would quadruple in a, in a couple of months that, you know, the whole world would be on shutdown. I mean, who would have possibly expected that? Right. And then who would have expected that the market would go up during that time? I mean, good luck trying to figure these things out. Right. And, and so so, you know, I remember nine months ago, very few people wanted to own, you know, long bonds or long tips. I mean, that was like that's what, that, you know, it's a crazy thing to buy. Gold, there were some people, there were some gold bugs saying, yeah, gold is a good thing. But, you know, hardly anybody expected to go up that much that fast. So, so it, you know, I think a lot of people, and you look at, you know, what's on TV and the news, it's all about predicting what's going to happen next. Everybody has a crystal ball. If you actually, you know, honestly tested the accuracy of those, they're very poor, right? Not much better yeah. than that. Is fine. I, I think, uh, I right. think it also. Oh, there's selective memory and, you know, predict right and and so and and obviously you know most people think they're good at it because they forget the things that they completely miss and you know only remember the things that they were right about um and and so it what's what's shocking to me is after the experience we just went through that there's that you know people have aren't really understanding that these things are really hard to predict i think i think the 
the one thing that Damien, you said that, that um, I wanted to come back to is this idea that we don't know the future sharp ratios, right? So, so in 1980 to 2000, there was a pretty significant stagflationary set of assets in a risk parity portfolio that were a tremendous drag all the way into the bottom of oil at $9 a barrel in 1999 and gold at $200. There was a massive drag. You're always going to have something in portfolio killing it. And you're always going to have something killing you. Right. The point is that you want to keep those bets in balance, harvest all that risk premium. And you just don't know that future yeah. sharp ratio. That's right. And so we, it, the sharp ratio of gold for the next 20 years could be two and a half. We don't know. Right. We don't know. So this right. is what I always say to people, right? This is, a, and, and you know, I have this back and forth with all the consultants all the time. Well, what capital market expectations should I, should I declare for my pension client for this portfolio that <laughs> yeah, you're great. recommending that their actuaries need to stamp, right? So this is why I keep pressing this point because I keep saying I have no idea. I could tell you I, I, that well, I, I think I, that this is the most efficient portfolio, but I cannot tell you with any reliability what the expected sharp ratio on this portfolio is. And this is somehow unsatisfying. So this is why I keep pressing the point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you can take a pretty simplified approach, um, which is just to say the return you expect from assets is the return of cash plus an excess return. And so cash is easy, right? We know what that is. And uh, and then the excess return is going to be a function of the sharp ratio. And again, we don't know what it's going to be, but it's probably positive you know, for capitalism to work. You need to assume you can get a better return by taking risk. Otherwise, you're just going to leave your money in the bank. And so central banks are very clear about their mission to, to avoid that scenario. It might happen for short periods of time, which is, by the way, one of the scenarios where, where this underperforms, um, because that's when all assets fall is when people want cash. Liquidity risk. Discount rate. Right? The discount that's rate right. changes. That's right. Um, and so, but, but over time, you know, they they have to engineer a situation where you get positive excess returns and we don't know what those excess returns are going to be. It's not that important. You're not all that dependent on how, you know, because one's probably going to shoot the lights out and one's going to do terribly and you don't know which is which. And if you're, if you have your, if you, if you basically spread your bets, you don't worry about it. Right. And then, and then you also, as I, as I said earlier, I would not discount this rebalancing benefit. It makes a big difference. And then I'm much more convicted that that's beneficial to you. I know that that works relative to you know the sharp ratio. Um, yeah. Because again, I, I, it comes down to the structural diversification here. These assets are different, not because of a correlation we measured, but because the way they're constructed, they have very reliable outcomes in different economic environments. You know, when, well, when they're growth structurally, collapsed, yeah, they're structurally yeah. connected to the economy in ways that causes them to act in these right. ways. Right. That's right. So you keep going. Yeah. And so one of the really interesting thing is when, when you concentrate in one asset class, you subject yourself to these very prolonged periods of underperformance that are devastating. We should just end it there. End on that point. <laughs> no, he's going to be hanging right on. What's he going to say? Devastating. <laughs> what is he going to say? I don't know. What yeah. Saying. So, just for those listeners, um, we've had we got a freeze frame here. <laughs> I bet Alex can uh, can pick up where. Yeah. So rather than up. rather than taking the risk of going through a lost decade, you can you know diversify across things that you you know are very unlikely to all do poorly at the same time. But from well, a rebalance, seventies stagflation perspective, right? The seventies stagflationary perspective. If you're in a balanced yeah. portfolio, you experienced basically a twenty year period 
where you just didn't have any positive returns. Now, now add on decumulation as baby boomers are decumulating their savings. This is uh, amplified dramatically uh, in taking a bet on any one specific economic regime uh, manifesting through stocks and bonds. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I want to go back to the rebalancing premium. I think we wanted to finish up is that this idea that you, you don't get that premium when you're focused on a single asset class, right? And I think a lot of the reasons as to why people don't, don't even talk about it is because when they're thinking about rebalancing premium, they're thinking about rebalancing across 500 equities, right? Is there any right. rebalancing benefit across 500? Well, no, a because bit. they're not correlated, right? There's a little like, bit, but not much. It's, 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 little proportion, it's proportional to the correlation. So the, right. the, the lower the correlation and the more volatile the assets, the higher the benefit. Exactly. So if you have created, I mean, Adam is, is about to publish something on this, but if you've created out of, out of all the portfolios you can create with public markets, right? The one that provides the highest level of rebalancing premium is the one that, that structurally creates the biggest distance between those assets that you create. Yep. So if, yeah. if you can find, if, if uh, Elon Musk goes to Mars and creates a colony there that's completely non-correlated to the, there, I want to have that part of my portfolio because it will allow me to have even a, a higher rebalancing premium. Right? That's, that's exactly right. So people ask, one of the things that people ask all the time is like, why would I invest in, uh, in risk parity? Because it's going to have no returns. You got bonds, not you got, well, let's assume that that's true and that gold isn't going to do anything. The rebalancing premium alone will, yeah. will hedge a lot of that risk. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's something yeah. that needs to be discussed a lot it's more. It's to hear that you guys came to the one, cause I get 1% as well on, um, the portfolio in general that you guys constructed. Um, what is interesting is that if you add more granularity within cert- some of the asset classes that you can get to more bets and the rebalancing premium per unit of volatility is a function of the number of bets that you are able to extract from the portfolio. Now, there's a bit of a trade-off because you've got to get a, have a little bit more commodity exposure in there in order to get some of those other bets. So you maybe are ejecting assets with a slightly lower expected premium. But on the flip side, you're able to extract a higher rebalancing bonus. So for example, if I look at a permanent portfolio that's just, you know, basically uh, stocks, uh, bonds, gold, and cash, then at about a 10% fall, I get maybe a one or one and a quarter percent rebalancing premium. But if I if I create the most diversified portfolio, of 65 or 70 different um, futures markets across a bunch of different equity indices, bond indices, and a, and a wide variety of commodities, I get up into, I can almost double the number of bets and I get up into the sort of two and a half to 3% a year in this rebalancing bonus at the same level of volatility. Yeah. But again, you, you, there's trade-offs there as well. But it, I do think that this volatility premium is, is, profoundly underappreciated. And what's so great about it is just, it's a mathematical, um, it's not a certainty, there's an error term there, but the mean of that is is actually a lot higher than anybody expects. And if you, if you do it properly, that even if the underlying assets deliver a near zero real return over the next five or 10 years, the rebalancing premium, if you do it properly, may take that excess return up to the two or three percent range. Yeah. Can I? And I know we only have Damien for five more minutes or so. And there's two questions that I really want to have hit. One is, what role do currencies play as a as a as another asset class in in a risk parity mm-hmm. framework? 
And yep. two is, and I know Corey Hofstein is going to want to ask this, who's paying this rebalancing dividend or bonus? Is it is it that we're transporting liquidity across these um, these asset buckets? And as we transport liquidity, we take it from where we have liquidity and the market doesn't. So we get some equity premium or some risk premium for that. Um, who's absorbing it? Who's paying it? Like, what, what are your thoughts on, on those? So two things before yeah, Damien has to go. That's the second question is a really good one. I actually don't know if I have an answer, but I'll try to think through it. Make one up. Just make one up. You're credible. Yeah, People will have, need it. You can answer that one. I have a second question after you answer the first one. Sorry. What was the first question? Maybe I think that was oh, just if, what, what role currencies. Play oh yeah. So currency. Um, so you can think of currency. Uh, it doesn't generally have an expected return. You know, it's a, it's a relative price between, Two economic um, regimes uh, in the form of an exchange rate. And so because it doesn't have an expected return, it's incremental risk for the portfolio, even though it's uncorrelated. So in general, you know, the, you probably don't want too much currency because it introduces an uncompensated risk. At the same time, you have to think about the objective of wealth preservation and ensuring that you have exposure to assets that can preserve wealth in a dollar collapse. Because again, we, we want to generate as consistent of a return as possible. And we don't want to be overly influenced by the, the problems in one economy. And so we do have exposure to non-US assets in pretty large size in this portfolio. Gold is a 17.5% allocation. That's a, that, that essentially is, a, is another currency. It's non-US, a non-US dollar currency. Um, we also have of the 25% in equities, half of that is, glo- is, is non-US. So it's, it's EM and developed non-US. And then we also have a component of the commodity producer equities that are international as well. So when you, when you add all that up, you, you probably have you know, 40% of the portfolio in, in non-US equities. And then if you broadly define commodities as another you know, way of preserving you know, real returns, then you know, maybe that bumps up to 45%. So it's a, it's a pretty meaningful portion of the portfolio. So, so here's a question I want to, I want to answer. Wait, wait, wait. So I want to hear the rebalance premium, the speculation of where the bonus comes from. I want to hear the speculation. Sorry. Sorry, Rod. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, look, it exists because there's mean reversion in assets. Um, who, who pays for that? I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I think probably you have, um, some element of just overreaction to things. Um, and so maybe, you know, um, uh, investors through just behavioral biases, you know, essentially pay that. Um, but I, I'm not exactly sure, uh, you know, why this exists. Like, um, well, what's amazing that- is that it actually exists in a wiener process. So you don't even need, a, you know, a specifically mean reverting process. That's true. That's true. It's it's more of a mechanical thing, which is why I've never thought of it as a premium. Yeah. Right. It really, I, I mean, I mean, I mean <laughs> um, and they would say wiener. He calls you that all the time. Um, he loves that process. We always talk in risk parity about the two axes, right? The growth and the inflation shocks, mm-hmm. but we rarely talk about liquidity shocks. And it seems to me that risk parity does really significantly better when there's positive liquidity and there's a lot of money going into everything. No question. And then during gro- acute growth shocks, there is a point like it, like you saw it this year, risk parity held in there, held in there, held in there. Yeah. Because gold and treasuries were going up. And then all of a sudden in three days, everybody just said, I want cash. And the liquidity dried up. And you saw yeah. this cascade down. And so w- we've had a bunch of speakers on, on our circuit here that are 
they say there's only one asset class and it's volatility. And yet in risk parity, we only talk about volatility as an asset class. Um, is there room for some sort of volatility uh, allocation, some sort of tail protection? Or, or if not, how do you guys think about this issue? Yeah, I mean, the, the challenge is you don't have an expected return, right? Yep. So you start throwing things in there that don't have an expected return. And over time- Or, ne or a negative expected return, yeah. actually, because yeah. you're paying a premium. Yeah, yeah it's insurance. It has a cost. So, so, so the way we think about it is if you can, if, so set that aside, if you can build a portfolio that is, has assets that are biased to do well in different environments, such that there, it's hard to imagine environment where you have sustained losses and, you know, say significant drawdown, it might be for a short period where there's a liquidity squeeze and that's hard to protect against, as you mentioned, because cash outperforms all assets. So as long as you can protect against a material downturn, then you don't need to pay the insurance. Right. So, so, you know, you, you're basically self-insuring without paying that extra, extra premium. And, you know, maybe that including that will help on the downside, but you're going to give up over the long run. So that's, that's the trade-off. Right. That's the, that's the, that's how you get the premium. That's you, you, the thing that you need to pay. Right. That's right. That excess return. Yeah. Right. So, so that's, that's a really, that's a really, that's a really important point, which is yeah. for anyone who's thinking about embracing this concept, it's not riskless. There's risk here. What we, what we do is we try to mitigate the risk to the things that we can mitigate, which is big shifts in economic environments. We can mitigate that risk by designing the portfolio in a better way. What we cannot protect against is these type of tight liquidity environments, which can be either caused by the central bank tightening faster than expected. That's like a 94 example, a 79 example. A 2018 example, or sorry, 2000, um, yeah, Four. 2018 example. There's nice yeah, there's a, example there's a few of them. The 2013 yeah. was a big one because of the the temper tantrum, uh, the taper tantrum um, yeah. that uh, Bernanke uh, kicked off, and and so those are environments where a balanced collection of assets will underperform because there's this headwind of tightening liquidity. There's also so those are the ones that are sort of central bank engineered, and then there are the panics selling environments that you referenced. So March was a perfect example. 2008 was a good example. Now, the, the reason why we're okay with that risk, I mean, one, we have to be because that's just the risk of investing in markets. In a lot of those scenarios that I described, particularly the panic selling scenarios, you're going to be better off in a balanced portfolio because at least there are some things that are going to hold in there like treasuries than you would be in a more conventional equity oriented portfolio. But then more importantly, these environments tend to be short lived because central banks cannot allow them to exist. You know, they will respond and they will do that by any means necessary to avoid that scenario because it's devastating. It will destroy the social fabric of the country if you allow that to persist. And so, um, and so, cause capitalism doesn't work in that environment. And so, um, so we're comfortable with that risk because we know it's going to be short lived. It will, it will be painful for some period of time, but it'll be short lived. And the thing you get with risk parity that I think is the, is the biggest takeaway that I want people to think about is that you don't get, uh, well, I think it's very unlikely you will see bad decades. And the reason for that is that um, you can have any single asset class dislocate for a decade. You had that, the, the, the equities were negative for, for the, the duration of the 2000s, for over a decade. And it's because you came into the 2000s with these wildly optimistic assumptions of what the future was going to be coming out of the tech bubble. And then what you actually got was the slowest rate of growth since the Great Depression. So that disconnect of what was priced in to start and then what actually happened was devastating for equities to the point that they were negative for a decade. And, and yet, if you look at a balanced portfolio like this, you wouldn't notice any difference between the 2000s or the 2010s or the, two, or, or the 1990s. Yeah. 
And it's because you had assets in there that were in bull markets. Bonds were in bull markets. Commodities were in bull markets. And so, so that's the benefit. And when you think about having liabilities or trying to save for retirement or whatever your objectives are, you can afford a bad year. You cannot afford a bad decade. Precisely. And, and even though everybody likes to talk on TV about what's going to happen, nobody really knows. We've established that. And so that's why we're so convicted in the strategy, which, which we believe should be the core of every investor's portfolio. This is how you should hold assets because you can avoid, in most scenarios, a bad decade. And that, and right. that, and that makes sure that you can achieve your long-term objectives. Start, start here. This is the do no harm portfolio. Yeah, it's if the, you want to have tilts and bets, yeah. then you would bet against this portfolio because you feel you have some edge or advantage to predict the future. But you start here. You don't yeah. start with, well, I'm not going to own any bonds because right. I think this. Well, no, that, and, that's and, not. and if you're going to do that, if you're going to try to make alphabets, then be honest about your ability to successfully right. achieve that. Handicap don't them. It behind, don't mask it behind beta. Yeah, don't, right. don't say, I, got, I know you, Damien, you got to go. Thank you, Damien. Go. I'm sorry. I'm having a thank good you. time. Get out of here, Damien. Get out of here. <laughs> All right. Thank He's you. He's got thank a real happy me. hour to get to. He's <laughs> probably actually got a real happy hour. How are you doing, Alex, for time? Because I had a few other questions and thoughts. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Um, I was curious. I mean, we talked about how we all agree that risk parity is a logical core for a long-term portfolio. And I'm, I'm just wondering, what are some of the, I know that that's, you do practice what you preach there, but but what are some of the satellites that you consider and how do you think about allocating to the sort of alpha sleeves? Um, well, there's also other beta sleeves. So you can own real estate. Um, you know, there are other asset classes that are, that are diversifying to what's in a core risk parity portfolio. But basically you're looking for other return streams that are, that are different. So, so, you know, one thing we look for are market neutral hedge funds um, because, you know, you, we call them hedge funds at hedge. You know, most of them don't, they basically go up and down with stocks. And, and if you can find some that are, that are truly uncorrelated, you know, whether they're market neutral or they're market neutral over time, that can be additive because it's low correlated, re- attractive returns, and you put them together. That obviously gives you similar return. You, you get a rebalancing benefit there too, um, with less risk, um, and 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 also private assets. I think there, if you start navigating towards less efficient markets, there's more alpha potential there. Obviously, you have to think of it net of fees, and if you're you know a taxable investor, net of taxes, uh, which is a high hurdle. Um, but but those are areas where you can try to. Uh, what do you what do you think what do you think alex about about so so we, we've established hey we've got risk parity is our yep. this is our this is our do no harm portfolio we have these events that occur from shocks mm-hmm. what about a tail protection strategy as an adjunct this is going to be non-correlated it's going to have a different series yep. of returns what, what do you think about that as a as an adjunct to the the uh, risk parity type solution yeah the, the the challenge with that is as we mentioned before it has a negative expected return Okay, so so you're so basically where you're trading off is uh, risk for reduced return. So you're basically scaling down a little bit. Um, if you're, what I think is a better approach is to start with risk parity, add less correlated returns, and if you do it well, you can actually achieve a, a total portfolio that has relatively low risk. If you if you execute on that, where you don't need to add those tail hedges. So so basically, you can self insure without experiencing a negative return, you know, addition to the portfolio. Apologies so, for the people on the call who are going to be grinding their teeth at this. <laughs> okay. um, well, I mean, there's, there's an assumption. The, the, the assumption first is there's a drag. 
Uh, the other thing is in those moments where you could rebalance to assets, you, know, you get a shock, the risk parity shock happens. You have a tail event that allows you to rebalance back to that. It really is a function of the drag, yeah. the lack of the lack of diversification, the opportunity to get more assets into long-term growth assets and a risk parity framework. So there's yeah. there's a couple of assumptions that you have to make. They're all valid. Um, yeah. You know, a lot a lot of the folks that we talk to do a lot of work in order to, you know, sort of minimize the drag um, in order to op- have that optimality in that moment of failure when everyone's going to be calling you. Right. Yeah. You, you have your 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 hey, everyone's going to call me. So I might think of that as a way to head some of those calls. You've got something in your yeah. portfolio doing well. Everybody calm down and relax anyway. Yeah. I mean, you that also have said. to factor in any, whatever your strategy is, you have to factor in the behavioral biases that we know. Correct. Exactly, right. And, and, you know, when we, you could just take any fund uh, that's been around a long time and you look at its time weighted return versus its dollar weighted return. And in most cases, the dollar weighted return is a few percentage points below the time weighted return, meaning people you know, buy, buy high and sell low over and over and over again. So one of the issues that I've seen with tail risk hedging strategies is they're very popular after a bad event and they they you know they're they're the optimism towards those fades as the bad times fall further in the rearview mirror so so that's i think we can't as humans we can't ignore that we have this natural bias and and so you have to factor that in on top of just the the, the math equations yeah th- I, you're speaking of tail sorry adam no, so, no. you've also got the positive tail Right. So you've got risk parity. And if you have a period like we've had with U.S. equities or yeah. NASDAQ, if someone has that proclivity from a behavioral aspect, right, you might say just, hey, just buy that, buy right. that thing so that we can hedge your behavioral bias with a particular asset that satiates yeah. that. Yeah. The, 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 the vast majority is going to be a risk parity construction. And, oh, you know, here's some other things around the around the edges, private equity yeah. and whatnot. Anyway, sorry, yeah. go ahead. on. Well, no, I mean, I was just going to, uh, you mentioned private equity, real estate, market neutral hedge funds. I'm, I'm sure there's other alpha sleeves. Yeah. Um, am I right in assuming that you think about allocations to those in the context of risk parity as well? Um, so they're just other sleeves that you're, you, you want to add to a broader conceptualization of the risk parity portfolio. And then somebody asked, um, which I think is a, a, a good question, uh, how... Do you, how do you think about risk in the context of, you know, building a risk parity portfolio, but when you're also allocating to private assets that don't yeah. have the same sort of pricing frequency, for example? Yeah. yeah. I, I, the way I would describe it is, is the framework is you want a bunch of returns that are attractive and low correlated to one another. And you can really break it up into three, three categories. There's public markets, right? Which we think of risk parity. There's private markets. Right. And, and those are they come as a package of alpha and beta. Right. So so those are typically together. Um, and, and so you want to think about what your you know, equity exposure is within those, uh, you know, beyond what the numbers show. Right. You just need to understand fundamentally how where the returns come from. So you have pr- public assets, private assets, and then you have what we call hedge funds that hedge. And which which should be uncorrelated because if you have a fund if you have a hedge fund that is highly correlated to equities you're paying a lot of fees and it's tax inefficient and you have bad terms for something you already get right so so if you look across those things and you're really thinking about your exposures from a from a kind of a high level of what is my exposure you know in what environment will this hedge fund do poorly and what environment will do well if it's truly uncorrelated 
it's that's totally different from equities, right? It could be down when equities are down. It could be up when they're down. You don't really know, but that's diversifying. And then the private assets, the less correlated they are, the better, right? And so, so I think the framework is just thinking about it from a risk parity framework from the top down, which is things that are uncorrelated to one another or low correlated to one another, and just don't overexpose yourself. So just to put a pin in that, for example, real estate, you would look at the real estate or REITs or a REIT portfolio or a private real estate portfolio, and you'd say, well, the um, the, the loan to equity ratio is whatever, uh, 30% or 40%, and therefore you've got a short bond uh, portion of that real estate portfolio, and the beta of the real estate is, to equities is whatever, 0.4 or 0.5, and you would you would seek to sort of neutralize or account for those relative betas in the broader context of the portfolio to preserve that risk parity spirit, even though you know that you don't have precision, but you, you want to approximate that in general. Yeah. And, and, and the way I would describe it is one step further. So zoom out a little bit more, which is in what environment is that real estate going to do well? And in what environment is it going to do poorly? Even, even setting aside the beta exposure, even the short bond exposure, it's, is that asset that you own, what is its bias to the economic environment? And so you put that into that bucket and then you add up all the buckets for all the assets and, and then alpha is separate from that. And then you just see what your exposure is. Yep. Not like is, that. Is there any, um, speaking of just leverage and how high you might target the volatility of risk parity strategies, where's the, where's the limit? Where does that, where does it kind mm -hmm. of move from, you know, sort of signal to noise or just fall apart? Where does the, the fraying around the sort of working closer, you know, there's a, this point where the arithmetic means can converge to the geometric and then they, and then they, any, yeah. any insight into well, that? Also the more, the more vol you have, the, the bigger, the difference between the time rate of return and the dollar rate of return, right? right? Because volatility is the more volatile something is the harder it is to hold on. So, so I think you're trying to optimize because ultimately investors earn their dollar weight of return. That, that's the actual dollar. Mm -hmm. return. And so if you have too much volatility, theoretically, it might make sense, especially when you can borrow at near zero. Uh, it might theoretically make sense, but investors can't hold on. So, so to us, the way we think about it is how much can people hold on? You know, at, at what vol level can people hold on? So the way we've structured it is it has something like 60, 40 expected volatility. Um, and you know, equity plus type returns, which, which I think is something that most people can hold on to. Now we're, you know, thinking about, well, maybe we can come up with another version as a little bit higher volatility. Uh, we have some limitations. Um, and especially when you can borrow, you know, what's interesting, we talk about all these asset classes being expensive. The one asset class that is actually really cheap is leverage. Cash. Right. Yeah. If yeah. you can borrow near zero and lever up, you know, this is what the Fed wants. They want, they're telling you cash is going to be zero for a long time. We're going to keep it there. We might make a negative. I mean, we want you to take, we don't want, we want you to take the cash and, and borrow or, or spend or, you know, buy things. Don't hold cash. So, so if you don't want to fight the Fed, one thing you could do is borrow, but you don't want to overdo it. Right. So, so if you can do it in a responsible way and responsible has to factor in what investors are likely to do. Yeah. And what, what do you think the, um, there was an earlier question. What do you, do you think about it in the number of non uncorrelated bets that you can create in a portfolio or is it sort of, you've got structural sort of the viewpoint. So there's four, or there's five, or there's three. 
Like, obviously, if we could all get 20 uncorrelated bet yeah. st- streams, would be great. What, what do you think there actually are? Are there new ones coming? Is Bitcoin one? Uh, when would you when would you think an asset class might cross the um, cross the chasm to, you know, frontier um, to being included? Any, any thoughts? Uh, that was a lot of questions. I'm sorry. Just answer yeah. the first five. The, the, yeah, <laughs> the, last, the last big one was tips. And that was, you know, these things right. moved slow. And that was, you know, 20 plus years ago. Um, you know, the, the I, I saw a question earlier, which is how many uncorrelated bets are there? Right. Um, asset classes, you're limited. They're, they're not really even uncorrelated. They might be uncorrelated over time, but they may be correlated for a decade at a time. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so finding these uncorrelated assets is a lot harder to do than to, than to, you know, might, might seem, um, you know, so I, I would think of it as, you know, if environment A transpires, what's likely to do well. And, and so when we do that, go through that process, we get to, you know, four or five, if you think of gold as a separate asset class versus commodities, maybe real estate could fit in there, um, you know, and then you're starting to move into alternative asset classes that are, not as maybe not as liquid, not as well understood, not have, hasn't been around long enough. But we're always looking. Um, right. But you need a you need a positive risk premium, right? You you want some liquidity, you want some history, um, and you want the, a clear economic bias. And that just takes a long time to collect all that data. For sure. Well, it takes a long time for the structural sort of implications of that of an asset class. Like you think about tips, right? So you have to. Right. Government has to manufacture them. They have to start trading. There's all the infrastructure right. that's involved with trading, and right. and so there, there's a lot. There's a lot to that um, right. from from that perspective. So yeah, but if you can jump in early, you can actually benefit. So tips, for example, since their inception, their sharp ratio blows everything else away. I mean, they, they they've actually outperformed stocks since they came out by by a few percentages Why a year. Do you think that is why. What's unique about tips that make them? that has made them um, work as well as they have? I think part of it is they're widely misunderstood. You know, it, it, it's, it's really interesting when you see how they behave. Oftentimes, it's not what you expect initially, and then they behave exactly as you expect. Um, there's obviously, there's less liquidity there than in treasuries, and that liquidity has been, been increasing, and I would suspect there'd be more issuance there. Um, uh you know, obviously limited history. So investors take a long time before they, they buy. So maybe the first 10 years, they did exceptionally well. Obviously, you had falling real yields during, you know, its inception. Uh, so that's helped. Um, but, but what's remarkable is you've had such great returns and tips without inflation, right? Inflation actually has been falling, um, which, gives, which gives you a sense of how well it could actually do, um, especially if we live in a world of negative real yields for an extended period. Well, in your book, you mentioned... Yeah. You- Sect tips into into um, you know it them being a hybrid between inflation protection and growth shocks, right? So it's kind of like a little bit of a ten year treasury and a little bit of a gold, but it's actually more directly correlated. Well, it's directly correlated to the CPI. Yeah, um, and so its ideal place is when there is a growth negative growth shock and and, and positive inflation shock, right? That's when they kind of will do better than either of them. Yeah, which is the exact opposite of equities. So if, 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 you, if you told me, hey, you, you only have two assets to build a diversified portfolio, you could just buy equities and tips Yeah, because cause they're, their bias is the exact opposite. Um, and, and like a perfect example is in 1970s, right? That we didn't have tips at the time, yeah. but that probably would have rivaled gold 
gold earned 30% a year for 10 years, right? I actually, would have been up there. I actually think that's the reason why, why risk parity gets such a bad name. I think that people may have heard somebody say, look, a good risk parity portfolio is some tips and some equities. And then they, they just hear bonds and equities. And then they say, right. well, in the seventies, they correlated to each other. Right. Um, you know, it's just, it's amazing how pervasive that view that that's just those two asset classes is. Yeah. Uh, in, in your, in your rounds of talking about risk parity, uh, how often do you have to deal with that objection and disabuse people of that? that? Um, qu quite often. The, the, the other part of that that is um, pretty interesting is there's, a I think, an overfocus on correlation. So people will say, oh, the correlation of you know X and Y were high recently, and you're assuming that they're going to be low. And so that that you have a failed assumption there. And it's not about correlation because you, know, you can take any two asset classes and that they could all go through periods of high correlation or even negative correlation. It's, it's about the economic bias. You know, so, so you just look at stocks and bonds, right? In the 80s and 90s, they were highly correlated, right? Because you had falling inflation and they're both biased to do well in that environment. Um, and in the 70s, they were highly correlated because you had rising inflation. But in periods where, where it's growth that's really moving, like the 2000s, you know, that's, that was the real driver. Inflation didn't really move very much, but growth was all over the place the correlation was negative, right? So, so correlation is just the manifestation of the environment, right? And so I think there's an over-focus on- Such on, a good point. On the specific numbers. You have to think about the, the economic bias and that, and most people don't think in that framework. It's kind of the relationships that manifest over much longer time periods than this sort of, oh, there was correlation for 10 years. No, no. And you don't even have to know the correlation right. in the short, right. like just know that they're, sort of generally not correlated in the longer term right. and that all the error terms that are happening in the short term, they're going to kind of offset and they're going to do some funky stuff. Yeah. But you like, th that's one of the things you're right. Oh, people will be very precise about, Oh, well they're correlated or not over a decade or five yeah. years. And they just like hand, hit, you know, hand to forehead. I'm like, right. with all this computer power, there's, there's an, a sense of obligation of trying to fine tune the machine Right, and fine tune it. Like the market is so peculiar because when you try to fine tune it, it'll it'll literally work against you because because that's how it prices, right? It discounts what the inputs are, right? Discounts what people what the consensus view is, um, and and so it's it's you're much better off zooming out and forgetting the details and forgetting the noise and just looking at the fundamental relationships that you know are true, even without being you know even without studying the data. You just know that, you know, if the economy weakens, rates will fall. And it's because of what the Fed's going to do. There's these, these natural relationships that are far more reliable than trying to guess what the sharp ratio is or what the expected return is or the expected risk or the correlation, you know, all the inputs into uh, an optimizer, right? There, there's, you're trying to create precision out of something that's not precise. Right. Very interesting. I have one, one other question that often comes up is when think of people, you know, the concept of risk parity, equal risk balance, everything that we discussed kind of all makes sense. But there are definitely two major ways of implementing risk parity that have been created, um, mm -hmm. the, the pro-cyclical and the counter-cyclical, right? The pro-cyclical one being that you're, 
you're creating a risk parity portfolio and you're constantly measuring the, the volatility of that portfolio and either increasing or decreasing your exposure in order to hit a target yeah. and kind of the Bridgewater approach, which is, listen, we expect these relationships, um, these, these are structural relationships across these asset classes and we're going to create weightings based on those structural relationships. Um, how do you think about that problem? What, what, what is the way that you guys uh, prefer to implement? Yeah, we're, we, we don't assume we can be precise about these things. Right. So, so part of, and, and I think this goes back to what I just said, which is this, um, this objective of trying to be more precise. So a lot of funds, what they do is they try to target a certain volatility, right? And, and there's maybe too much science in this where they're, and, and basically the way it ends up is when market volatility is low, they have more leverage. And when market volatility is high, they have less leverage because they're trying to target a certain volatility because that's they, they, their perspective is that's what risk parity is supposed to do. And the challenge there is you can get whipsawed and it happens all the time because oftentimes periods of low volatility are followed by periods of high volatility and vice versa. And, and if you're trying to fine tune that way that we saw this this year, a lot of these funds lost a lot on the downturn, cut their leverage at the, near the lows and then didn't rebound as much. And, you know, our, our little ETF that isn't very active and it just holds, you know, 20% leverage all the time. It, went, it was down 4% in Q1 and is up 10% now. And there's nothing fancy about it. There's no trying to fine tune and, and target volatility. We just know what these relationships are over time and we just hold it. It's actually very simple. When, when, I, when I look through the, because um, you guys, you guys publish the index, right? It's the Advanced Research yeah. Institute Risk Parity Index, mm-hmm. um, which is great because it provides some um, ability for analysis um, and, and a good sort of... Uh, illustration of what one might expect in general in terms of the character of a risk parity uh, yep. strategy. Um, but one thing that did stand out as I as I just did a quick uh, poke around at the, at the index was that it does seem to have a rather uh, high strategic beta to treasury risk, um, higher than what we observe in some of the other indices. Um, and I'm just wondering, is that strategic? And I, I mean, like going all the way back, right? So you can look at a rolling basis or you can look at yep. it on an average basis, but certainly it does have a very, and I, obviously that that was very, very helpful in the more recent episode where having a larger allocation to fixed income obviously mm-hmm. was was very useful. Yeah. Um, so what are the risks and, and benefits in your mind to having that larger strategic beta to yeah. treasuries. So I think there, it, it's a little misleading. So the exposure there is very similar to the ETF. And, and the reason there's a difference in, in market value is because in the index, we're just buying 10-year treasuries, whereas in the ETF, it's 10s and 30s. So, so that's limitations with the index and having a long track record because it's back-tested to 98. So, so that's why it's there. But the duration... Um, exposure is very similar in the ETF. So, so, the, so it is risk balanced. It's not, it just looks that way because of the allocation. It's just lower. Um, it's a little bit shorter duration than the ETF. Right. Sure. Okay. Yep. Makes sense. All right. Good. Well, look, we're, we're in wow. an hour and a half almost. Uh, that so was- I've only got five more questions. <laughs> <laughs> This is fun. You, 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 do this every, you do this every Friday. This is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Good for you. Oh, we'll you, you have you back on too. Talk to people. 
Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and we'll definitely have you back on because I want to. I want to know what Mike's five questions are. <laughs> great thing I, I say. I actually have them. I'm just want to save them. Ask them. You ask them. <laughs> well, that was the first set of five. I've got <laughs> five sets of five. Right? Five sets of five. It's the the conversations are usually more contentious too. I mean, we we we've been racking our brain about how to like poke and prod on a subject that we're all in violent agreement on. Um, yeah, <laughs> but. Uh, Everybody who's not for the rest of the do you guys have another half hour? <laughs> That's right. All these objections that I just want to. <laughs> That's right. No, it's been it's been helpful though to to understand how um, how you and your group cross the Rubicon, help people understand. Uh, we are always struggling with that. You know the, the discussion we've had so many times with you know the idea of treasuries and you know risk parities, levered bonds and. Uh, you know, it's sort of like saying, "Hey, risk parities is levered gold in in 1980." It's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's not. It's an, a naive view, and uh, but it's really hard to get people over it. And and I think, I, you know, I'd love to. And the next time we we get together, I want I want to hear more about how you get how do you. Well, I wouldn't mind knowing now, actually, because okay. we have two minutes before an hour. Yeah. But how do you get the? How do you get the, You know, so Adam was poking and prodding on this earlier, but how do you get the institutional client over? the hurdle on this or is it that they've come over the hurdle already and so they're looking for expertise and they they're ready to buy or do you ever convert them are they kind of like you know real estate investors trying to convert them to public markets this is never going to happen yeah i mean it's easier to convert people they're thinking when it's doing well than when it's doing poorly right Right. so let's start there Okay, so people, people are more Word. things that are doing well. <laughs> Word. More than the ETF that has launched something like this at the right time that I've ever met. I Congrats. Yeah, I mean, normally when you launch an ETF before a global pandemic, that's not a good time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like starting a business before, like you open a restaurant Dude. in January, it's probably not the best. You're gold. Um, right, but <laughs> in this case, you know, you have this philosophy of how things are supposed to work. And, and you got this, the real life stress test in, in both scenarios, not just the downside scenario, but in the upside scenario, right? And then, and then the turn, which timing that turn is nearly impossible, right? So, and you know, let alone predicting it. Um, so you got it, you, you actually got the test on both sides. So, so that, that helps, obviously. So when you tell the story with that backdrop, you know, you get a lot of nodding of heads. So, so I think you have to think of it in you know, an environment where that's not happening. And, and how do you convince people? Um, so I think the, the first thing is, is the way people are trained to think about investments is I think environment A is going to transpire. Therefore, I want to own asset A, right? As opposed to, I don't really know what the environment's going to be. And, and I need to recognize that if it's environment A, asset A is the thing to own. If it's environment B, then asset B is the one to own. If it's C, then and recognizing that you don't know what the environment's going to be. And part of that 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 bridge is understanding that if if your view of what the future looks like is a consensus view, that's not insightful because that's already in the price. So not only do you have to guess what's going to happen, you have to guess relative to what's already discounted. So so those are the steps. So that's like you go from A to B to C. And if you can make that connection, that logical connection, then they recognize, wow, I really don't know what's going to happen relative to the price. And if I don't know, and, and, and I know that if, if A happens, it's good for A. If B happens, it's good for B. Then you start, you basically get them to tell you how they should invest without you telling them the way to do it. Okay, but, but let's, let's, uh, let's talk about that a little bit, right? Because okay. I think 
I am genuinely curious as to whether it's people coming to you that have already been converted or if you've ever actually been able to convert anybody. Because if you're dealing with institutions, yep. whose CIO's job is to pick winners and drop losers, whether that is from a security selection perspective or from a strategy selection perspective or from future assumptions of returns and asset allocation, their job is that. Yeah. And you're coming in there and saying, let's go to the point A, then point B, then point C. Do you see how you've been useless? Everything you've done up to this point has been wrong. Are you with me so far? Just yeah. investment risk parity. Yeah. So I just, I, I've never been able to convince anybody that hasn't completely lost faith in their abilities. I mean, you need to get got people from like the depths of hell when they've, they're just done. Yeah. They, they've never been able to get it right. And they finally admit it. They're they, despondent. Here it is. <laughs> they get fired. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so the short answer is yes. Been able to convert people. A lot of it is from the book. That's actually one of the reasons I wrote the book because I spent so much time explaining the concepts that I said, you know what, I should just write this down. And somebody who's really interested, read the book and then let's talk. Hmm. Okay? And, and so that helps when you, when you invest the time to go through it and see the data and all that, you're much more likely to, to, you know, for the light to turn on than a short conversation. And then, and then the other thing is, is the big key is recognizing the relationships of environment A and asset A, environment B and asset B, because those, those relationships happen even over shorter periods of time, right? You get a small downturn in you know, Q4 and 18, and you can see what the assets do. And so the, that logic gets embedded in your brain, you view the markets, and you're now you're thinking from that framework and you see it happening. And that builds confidence over time, even if you haven't invested yourself, but you start to see the relationships. It's kind of like, it's like the matrix, right? <laughs> you, you, you're, you're kind of in that zone and you can see these things that kind of move in slow motion and then it reinforces the, the belief. And then that leads you down that path. The, the other- It's interesting because, oh, no, didn't no, realize no, you had another point. The go for it. Think about it is you don't have to go from, I know the future to I have no idea, right? There's a middle ground, which is, I think I do, but I'm not going to always be right. So maybe my hit rate is 60% or 70% if you're overconfident. And, and so in that environment or in that, in that framework, maybe risk parity uh, is your core and maybe your neutral portfolio, right? And then you tilt around it. And the more confidence you have in your ability to tilt either yourself or by hiring active managers, then you, then you have less risk parity and more of the other things. And the less confident you are, you have more risk parity. But to not have it at all is making a huge assumption that there's no way you can, you can uh, plausibly make. Yeah, I like that. We use Preach. the hubris, the, uh, the humility hubris. Uh, right. Scale. I mean, violent agreement. <laughs> well, that percentage is a good heuristic. That's right. That's right. It yeah. is interesting, though, because we our, our experience, because we, we, I think, communicate in, in the same way and position in the same way. Um, and our experience is often that the CIO will invest his personal account with us and the, and the endowment... <laughs> will not have yeah. anything to do with it. Right. And so, so that's an interesting, that well, happens all career, the time. Career, career, almost yeah. Example. Yeah. Career risk is real, right? You can't ignore it because, and that goes into the dollar way to return as well, because, you know, if you, if, if career risk is at play and it always is, um, then you may not be able to hold on for the ride. And if that's the case, then you shouldn't do it or you should minimize your exposure. So, so it's really those who have the complete buy-in where they're basically setting aside the risk of looking like an idiot for an extended period of time. 
uh, and potentially getting fired or, or shunned, right? Those are the ones who embrace it more. Um, and then the ones that, that maybe really embrace it personally, but at that institutional level can't implement it for those challenges, maybe they just do less. So, so I think of it as like a sliding scale. And, and, and you know, as, a, as an advisor, I think of it, there's a spectrum. On one end, it's a really well-balanced, diversified portfolio. The other end is what everybody else does. And our job as advisors is to play psychologists in some ways and find the right point along that spectrum for each client where they can go as far towards the diversified balance side as they can handle. And, and so we test them. So a lot of times I sit down with a client and, and I say, look, this is what everybody else does. This is what we think is ideal. We're not going to put you in the ideal portfolio because you can't handle it. Right. And take away. <laughs> you can't handle the truth. Right. <laughs> so, so, so we're going to test you and we're going to start a little bit over in that direction. And then there's going to be a challenging environment that's going to come in the future. I don't know when or how it's going to transpire, but it's going to come. And then we'll sit down and we talk about it again and see how you feel. And then we'll do that again. And every time you pass the test, we'll go further and further. And if you fail, we'll take a step back and we'll work our way in this direction. So that's, and you tell people. I like the language, the pass, fail, you can't <laughs> handle it. These are good. Takeaway. These are really good ways to, to position it for. for uh, this is for what brilliant. you can't have that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yet. Right. When brilliant. You will have Did it. Did you just say I can't have something? What? Yeah. <laughs> you know who I am? <laughs> and usually we're dealing with people who are very confident and successful. So exactly. say, no, no, I'll prove you wrong. I can do it. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, that was, that was one of, I'm going to keep all my other questions for later that I wanted to get to that one. Awesome. All right. Well, Alex, uh, it's been uh, many years that we've been uh, interacting. I'm glad we finally got you on the podcast and got to chat about our joint passions. Uh, we'll definitely have you and Damien in it here again to, appreciate that. or maybe we'll bring some other guys that uh, have contentious views on that'd be, this. That'd be even better. I kind of feel yeah. like uh, Chandler. Um, Jason Buck and uh, Shahidi Damien thing would be just let, let just drop them in the, the the podcast and walk away. Thunderdome, you want a Thunderdome? Yeah, just, no, we need we need someone who just wants one hundred percent U.S. equities too. Like oh, Rick, yeah. we need Rick Ferry on this. Rick too. Ferry will get us yeah. in here. Hugh Henry, Hugh Henry, let's put him in. There. <laughs> right. <laughs> Madman. Well, wow. thank you for right. being so generous with thank your time, you, Alex. Alex. Yeah, it's been it's amazing. Fun. Looking forward. If you're in the Caymans, drop by. If we're in LA, we're definitely going to knock on your door. So sounds good. Um, cheers and thank you very much. And everybody, remember that just smile and nod like the penguins in Madagascar while Annie takes us off of this last little bit. Everyone, stay here and smile and nod. <laughs> Purpose though. Go ahead, Annie. Take us. That's a wrap, Annie. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.